If the hair is not standing up on the back of your neck, you might want to check your pulse right now. <laughs> when historians attempt to write the story of the COVID-19 pandemic and they ask the question, how did Americans cope with the plague that ravaged their country and upended their lives? The answer that will rise to the top is bread. When they inquire, how did we survive the plague? Many will simply reply, sourdough starter. <laughs> we were stuck at home, bored and hungry. Our shelves were bare and the grocery stores were dangerous places. We needed something to pass the time, feed our families, something warm and comforting to ease our pain and relieve our stress. So when it seemed like the world was ending, we baked bread. While a deadly airborne virus was wreaking havoc on our world, Americans discovered the joys of a hungry, single-celled fungus that consumes water and flour, gives off carbon dioxide, and causes things to rise. We became obsessed with yeast. Writer Emily Vanderwerf proclaimed yeast is a happy accident. Somehow in the midst of a global pandemic, we coaxed an invisible creature out of the air around us and into our food. She wrote, baking bread is what we do in a crisis, perhaps because bread is one of the very foundations of human civilization, and perhaps because it was marketed to us as life-giving. In the midst of the quarantine, we turned seemingly collectively to techniques from the past like coaxing yeast out of thin air, the sort of sufficiently advanced technology that is indistinguishable from magic. We learned to create something from nothing. And while yeast isn't really magic, it is life. It is literally alive, eating and growing, making things delicious. When there's a virus everywhere, it's hard to remember that yeast is also all around us. The air itself is poised between life and death. In a world run amuck with sickness, we desperately needed to believe in the power of life, and we found it in the existential comfort of pulling life and mixing and folding and proofing and baking and sharing bread with each other. In the words of Chilean poet Pablo Neruda, ah, how simple you are, bread, and yet how profound. In 2019, a physicist named Seamus Blackley, who actually was the inventor of the Xbox, stunned the world and went viral when he made a loaf of bread using 4,500-year-old ancient Egyptian yeast that had been scraped off the side of a piece of pottery. Blackney claimed that the bread was sweeter and softer than anything he'd ever tasted. Scholars believe that Egyptians may have been the first to bake bread with wild yeast, but even if they weren't, Egypt is where the story of yeast begins for us. In the book of Exodus, we're told, the night before the Hebrews were delivered from bondage in Egypt, God commanded them to sacrifice a lamb and eat it with unleavened bread, or matzah, bread made without yeast. This unleavened bread was meant to symbolize the Hebrews' 
hasty departure from slavery, to be a reminder of God's liberating activity on their behalf, and to signify the birth of a new people that was set apart from the empire of Egypt. Afterwards, God told the people to replicate this feast every year on the anniversary of their deliverance, and from then on, Jewish law forbid both the consumption and the possession of yeast, or what they called chametz. Today, when Jewish people prepare for Passover, they clean their homes diligently to remove any chametz. And this practice of removing chametz is so serious that Jewish children are encouraged to search for it like an Easter egg hunt. Households make a nullification statement, renouncing all ownership of chametz that may still be in their possession. Families sell all the utensils that have touched the yeast, and then they burn any chametz that they find left over in their homes. The difference between leaven and unleavened bread is that leavened bread rises, filling itself with hot air, while matzah stays flat. So for the Jews, the yeast symbolizes the swelling of the ego that enslaves all of our souls in sin and evil. The flat, unpretentious matzah, on the other hand, symbolizes humility, which they believe enables people to connect with God without their egos getting in the way. Building on the story of Exodus and Passover, yeast became synonymous in the Bible with corruption and a metaphor for sin. Throughout Scripture, the law and the prophets declare that the yeast of sin and evil should be removed from all of our lives. And this is the conception of yeast that Jesus inherited. And yet, he expanded the metaphor by giving yeast a positive connotation as well, developing a contrast in the Gospels between two different types of yeast, the yeast of good and the yeast of evil. In a string of parables that appears in Matthew 13 and Luke 13, Jesus proclaimed, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. And yet then in Luke 12, right before that, Jesus also said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is their hypocrisy. Nothing that is covered up now will not be uncovered. Nothing secret will not become known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered behind closed doors, Jesus said, will be proclaimed from the rooftops. Yeast could be a metaphor for the kingdom of God or for the malevolent lies and schemes that the Pharisees were conjuring behind closed doors and under the cover of darkness. Jesus warned his disciples again in Mark, our passage today, of the yeast of the Pharisees, their secret meetings, their shadow sessions their clandestine conversations and backroom discussions, hypocritical activities, false teachings, lies, conspiracies. However, in Mark's gospel, the Pharisees are not the only thing the disciples have to worry about. There are Herodians as well. You may remember back in chapter 3 when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees immediately conspired, we are told, with the Herodians against him, seeking to destroy him. This unlikely confederacy of the religious and the political leaders in Judea bent on destroying Jesus famously tried to trap him again later with that question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? 
The Pharisees and the Herodians were an odd coupling because they had conflicting perspectives and social objectives. The Pharisees were concerned with enforcing religious purity codes that excluded the poor and the sick, unclean sinners like tax collectors, prostitutes, and Gentiles. The Herodians, on the other hand, were the ruling elite who promoted collaboration with the Roman Empire. Joined together, this unholy union against Jesus had become a true conspiracy. Jesus made these groups into strange bedfellows because his movement was threatening to both. He challenged the religious purity codes of the Pharisees that they were using to exclude the sick and the poor and the outcast, and he stood against any quest for political power the Herodians were using for domination and control. Any hierarchy of human value, especially one based on religious purity or political power, was antithetical to the kingdom of God, where the first are last, last are first, least are greatest, and the poor are blessed. When Jesus and his disciples finished feeding the 4,000 Gentiles, they got in a boat to go to Dalmantha and ran into some Pharisees again, trying to test him, asking for a sign from heaven. And Mark tells us Jesus was beyond frustrated. He was more than irritated. He was fed up and exasperated. He sighed deeply in his spirit, the translation says, and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given. He was exasperated because the Pharisees didn't really want a sign. They were being disingenuous and hypocritical. Their demand for a sign was nothing more than a smokescreen for their conspiracy, their attempts to try and undermine Jesus and his movement. Jesus had already healed the sick and fed the multitudes, welcomed outsiders, cast out many demons. The proof was in the pudding. What more sign did they need? Did they want God to part the sky and shout down in a booming voice, this is my beloved child, listen to him? As the parables point out, even if God sent a son or came down from heaven in full form, they still wouldn't listen, which is why Jesus was constantly lamenting their generation. The movement of love and inclusivity that Jesus and his followers were creating was fully aligned with God's commands in Scripture and the liberatory movement of Exodus and beyond. Therefore, the Pharisees should not and did not need anything but the evidence that the Spirit was moving. They didn't need another sign. What they needed was to repent and join the movement. But like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, the Pharisees were standing outside, filled with resentment, refusing to join the party that was celebrating the prodigal's return. Pharisees were a lost cause, but they're not the antagonists in this story. It's the disciples who take center stage. And the truly troubling issue at hand is that even the people following Jesus, even those who were fully aligned with the movement, still didn't get it. When Jesus told them to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, they thought he was talking about a literal loaf of bread. How dense do you have to be? And Jesus said, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? Do you have ears and yet fail to listen? The loaf of bread was a metaphor. Of course it was. 
for the inclusive community that Jesus was trying to create, an inclusive community of Jews and Gentiles. The 12 baskets from the 5,000 were representation of the 12 tribes of Israel. The seven baskets of leftovers of the 4,000 represented the seven nations of the world, of the earth at the time that were being united together into one people, one bread, one body, one loaf. And yet, the yeast of the Pharisees and Herodians was rising up against that movement with lies and false teachings, half-truths and misinformation, threatening to corrupt the beloved community and destroy the one loaf that they were cultivating. It's interesting. Paul used the same metaphor with the Corinthians when they failed to confront a person in their church who was harming the whole community. He proclaimed, do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so that you may be a new batch. Do not celebrate, he said, with the old yeast of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Like Paul, Jesus was telling the disciples that if you don't confront the yeast of malice and evil, all the deceitful lies of the Pharisees and Herodians are spreading. They will destroy this movement of inclusivity, just like a bad batch of yeast can destroy an entire loaf. And as some might say, you know, it's just a few bad apples. But Jesus and Paul would say one bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. One piece of misinformation can be like a yeast that rips through the entire community, spoiling it for everyone. We live in an age of lies and doublespeak, conspiracy theories and outright propaganda, unlike anything the world has ever seen. Even in Nazi Germany, where propaganda was perfected by Joseph Goebbels, they did not have Facebook. They did not have Twitter. They did not have TikTok. Neuroscientists have shown that our brains are prone to conspiracy theories. When we experience stressful or disruptive events in our lives, we naturally seek to make sense out of the invisible and inexplicable. Put another way, T.S. Eliot said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. Or as systematic theologian Akimi Yuan proclaims, People cannot abide by a truth. They prefer fantasy over reality. This fact about us makes us easy prey for those who want to plant an insidious ideology into our minds for their own benefit. As Aldous Huxley showed in his famous book, A Brave New World, the principles underlying propaganda are extremely simple. Find a widespread unconscious fear or anxiety. Relate this fear to the ideology you want to spread. Then build a bridge of verbal and pictorial symbols over which people can pass from a fact to a dream, from a dream to an illusion. And he says this, a propagandist is always selling false hope. We know if we're honest, the most dangerous thing for any democratic community is propaganda. Because every democracy depends on a well-informed population who has the facts to make sound decisions that benefit the common good. 
Yet we Americans blindly consume the doublespeak of demagogic religious and political leaders, corporations, and tech giants. We believe the wild misinformation about COVID-19 and the vaccine engage the QAnon phenomenon as if it's serious, or the fabricated panic about critical race theory, or xenophobic rhetoric about migrants crossing the border, or lies about Afghanistan. It all reveals how easily manipulated we are, how susceptible we are to propaganda. Robert Heinlein claimed you can sway a thousand people by appealing to their prejudices quicker than you can convince one person with logic. Our nation is suffering from a mass psychosis. And it's challenging enough when the yeast rises as it has on a national scale. But what if the yeast rises in your family, your school, your business, your neighborhood, or your church? What do we do when people we know are spreading lies and misinformation, false truths, gossip, and rumors? American philosopher Chris Jami writes, a rumor is a social cancer that is difficult to contain, and it rots the brains of the masses. The real danger, though, is that so many people find rumors enjoyable. And in such cases, when a rumor is only partially made of truth, it is difficult to pinpoint exactly where the information may have gone wrong. It is passed on and on until at some point, some brave soul questions its validity. A brave soul who refuses to bite the apple. We need brave souls in our world today. Brave souls willing to renounce the yeast, willing to refuse to consume the lies. The only way to stop the yeast of the Pharisees and Herodians from destroying the movement of inclusivity Jesus was building was for the disciples to be brave enough to confront the lies. The same is true for us in every aspect of our lives as well in our cities, neighborhoods, families, businesses, schools, and even our churches. The only way to stop the yeast from destroying the inclusive community that the Spirit is building among us is for brave souls to have the courage to confront the misinformation, conspiracy theories, gossip, and rumors with the light of truth. Proverbs 6 is rather blunt about the matter. If you've ever read it, you may know, the author states there are six things God hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and number seven, a person who sows discord in the community. You don't often hear what God hates in Scripture. In our church covenant, we vow to accept controversy as a reality of life together. But controversy is not the same as intentionally sowing discord. Controversy should follow the guidelines of Matthew 18, going directly to the person involved or to the entire community out in the open, presenting one's concerns in the light of day. It does not whisper or gossip in the shadows, stew up discord in the dark living rooms of discontent, as I heard one preacher proclaim from this pulpit. 
That is what yeast does. We often forget the second half of that sentence in our covenant, that we will accept controversy as an opportunity for growth toward maturity. And there's nothing mature about spreading gossip, is there? Nothing mature about lies and misinformation in the dark. That doesn't help anything or anyone grow. Controversy is constructive, but yeast tears down and destroys. Notice Jesus did not say, turn a blind eye to the yeast. Tolerate the yeast. Ignore the yeast and hope it goes away. Try to reason with the yeast. Present the facts to the yeast. Try to appease the yeast. Jesus said, beware of the yeast. As beware of Greeks bearing gifts, they might be a Trojan horse. Or beware the Ides of March, they might be getting ready to stab you. The word beware does not just mean to be wary or careful or take heed, but to take action. It was an extreme warning to turn in the opposite direction of the danger, away from the yeast of lies and evil, toward the pursuit of goodness and truth. Jesus' admonition to beware of the yeast meant to repent and turn around. Do not pass go. Do not collect $100. Why? Because the whole movement was at stake. The very people who had been graciously and generously welcomed and included into the family of God were in danger. The disciples were in peril. The beloved community was in jeopardy. The whole loaf was at risk of being spoiled. It may seem as if the yeast of religious purity and political power, propaganda and misinformation, lies and evil are too daunting for us to stand against. But bravery is born from the ardent belief that the health of a community comes over and above everything else. Even our own personal preferences. Bravery is born from that profound conviction that the inclusive community of love that God is creating in and among us is so precious and so needed in our world that we will be brave enough to do what is necessary to protect it from any yeast that would spoil the loaf. There's no hope in propaganda. It's only false hope. There is only hope in people. Jesus told the disciples, beware of the yeast because he wanted them to believe in that community that they were building so deeply that they would be brave enough to expose the lies, tell the truth, stand against anything that was trying to destroy it. Conspiracies cannot survive the light and the truth which is why the health of our communities hangs on the hope of brave people who put the needs of the whole loaf above their own, who make the hard decision to stand up for the good of all people, and who choose community over individualism, truth over lies, and the power of love over the love of power. The Spirit of God is doing an incredible work among us even in the midst of a crisis bringing together people from all walks of life into a beloved community. Even in the midst of a global pandemic, we are still making bread, vigorously mixing and folding, proofing and sharing, desperately clinging to the power of life for ourselves and for each other, building a community by welcoming and embracing people that the world has demeaned and discarded. We don't need another sign from heaven. 
It's already here. We simply need people with hearts that can feel it, eyes that can see it, ears that can hear it, people brave enough to stand up and speak the truth, knowing full well that the truth is the only thing that can set us free from the yeast of evil. Neruda was right. This earthly victory, it does not have wings. She wears bread on her shoulders instead. Courageously she soars, setting the world free like a baker born aloft by the wind. Amen.